Hi, this is Against Everyone with Connor Habib, a weekly podcast featuring my conversations with countercultural figures and presenting the intersections of spirituality, philosophy, and politics in an engaging and accessible way. Well, friends, before I start this episode uh, with Svechko Horvat, I want to talk about three conundrums um, <laughs> that hopefully uh, I go on to solve in collaboration or give a glimpse of uh, an answer to in collaboration with Svechko Horvat, the philosopher, author, activist. Um, so the three conundrums, one is about morality and time, one is about the phantom nature of social forces, and one is about the problem of space. Um, <laughs> and uh, I'm going to give really sort of on-the-ground examples for these so you can understand what I'm talking about and I'm not just going into theory jargon. Um, the first, which I said is about rallying in time, I, I'm going to start by telling a story. Um, right after Trump was elected, uh, in fact, I think the, that night or maybe the night after, I went with my friend Joanne McNeil, who's been uh, on the show. She's uh, an internet uh, scholar, historian, and cultural critic. Um, she and I went to go see Rebecca Solnit, the author, uh, speak in LA. And, um, <laughs> Rebecca, we, we thought, we thought Rebecca Solnit was going to talk about maps. Um, but actually because of the election, she ended up talking mostly about Trump and Hillary Clinton. And, uh, of course, the audience questions were these kinds of timid, frightened questions about the future. And one of the things that Rebecca Solnit said, she just said, you know, uh, if, if we don't participate in this climate agreement, it's over. It's game over. Um, she said something at least equally declarative to that. And, you know, with due respect, I, I really have learned a lot from Rebecca Solnit, so this isn't too... Uh, <laughs> dunk on her. But um, I sort of turned to my friend Joanne and I just thought, and I, and I, and I said to her, well, how, isn't it immoral for her to be sitting here if she thinks that? And um, I don't necessarily really think that Rebecca Solnit was being uh, immoral or amoral by just sitting there. Um, but I was raising a kind of question, which was, you know, when we imagine the future when we imagine that the world is going to end because of climate change, uh, it is game over if the state doesn't participate in uh, regulating climate change, then that means that we are all going to die, in which case the stakes could not be higher. <laughs> I mean, it's just impossible for the stakes to be higher than absolute um, fool <laughs> species genocide. Uh and so um, wouldn't it be in some ways uh, immoral to say it's game over and really believe that and just to be sitting on stage talking about a book? Shouldn't direct action be taken just right then, the moment you notice it? Now, of, of course, it's not that. Of course, it's more difficult than that. A another time I was hanging out with my friend Heather Berg, who's also been on the show. She's a sex work s scholar and sociologist. And um, we had just done an event together, and we were talking with people afterward about uh, <laughs> the climate change came up. 
And they were just saying how worried they were about it and everything. And, and I just thought, this is just such a strange thing. Like, we're sitting here eating our Thai food. Um, and the Pad Thai, you know, it's like, it's kind of mediocre. So it's not even good enough to keep us from taking direct action against uh, ExxonMobil or whatever the fuck. And I said, are you guys sure you care? Because we're not doing anything about it right now. Now, again... I obviously don't think that we should have gotten up at that moment. I just was sort of raising the question, what is this tension between the absolute moral imperative um, to act when we know that the entire planet full of people is going to die if we don't act versus us just sort of living our everyday lives? How do we deal with that? Um, Do we choose to simply not think that that catastrophe is coming. Uh, that's one option. Do we um, just say, I'll leave it up to experts, even though they're not solving the problem, but okay, I mean, it's just in their hands. I suppose that that's one option. But mostly, I don't think we really seek the option for how to uh, resolve that contradiction. We just kind of go about our lives and uh, think about the end. So that's the first conundrum. The second is about structures and what we mean when we talk about structures. So this is coming to light a lot in uh, in uh, our time with this global crisis. So, um, you know, there's a lot of blame of individuals happening right now. Uh, if someone doesn't wear a mask, they're spoiling it for everybody else and they're prolonging the lockdowns and all that sort of stuff. Or, you know, if they have a party or a house party or something like that. And, um, you know, I, I mean, I, first of all, have an issue with saying if you don't obey the regulations, you're spoiling it for everybody else. Like it's um, homeroom in high school uh, or, or, or detention where everybody has to stay extra because one kid says the wrong thing. But, you know, because that ends up being sort of an extension of uh, how dare you not work for me and my desires um, and also ignores the fact that everybody's always spoiling something for everybody else. Um, and certainly having an iPhone is spoiling the life of the person who had to uh, harvest the rare earth materials. <laughs> but let's move past that and just say, like, it's just not a good argument to say um, it's the fault of the citizenry when there are these big structures um, that are failing everybody, governments, corporations, um, you know, and the ways that they poorly allocate resources. And, you know, a lot of people point the finger at capitalism. Uh, it's structural. It's not individuals. It's capitalism that's causing the crisis. Well, that's surely closer to the truth than blaming um, Bobby, who had a rager last night. But how? How is capitalism making things bad? What do we mean when we say capitalism is doing this or doing that, like capitalism exploits people, capitalism ruins people's lives, capitalism is exasperating or exacerbating the uh, the the issues right now and the crisis. Like, is it a being? Is it a spiritual being? Is it uh, like some sort of weird nebulous? force that's been set in motion by a witch long ago because isn't it that we're carrying out capitalism and how do we undo that 
and how do we experience it? What is it that we would undo anyway? So that's the second conundrum. And then the third is um, <laughs> this idea that we're able to hang out with people. Um, so it's a, it's a time and space conundrum. So um, it, it's this idea that we're able to hang out with people over great distances right now because we have Zoom and we have cell phones and um, we can look at pictures of people uh, f far away on our phones and that sort of stuff. Um, and that uh, I'm just sort of thinking, you know, we have an experience of in some ways not being separated by space. But um, don't we experience space in our conversations? Like when I'm talking to someone on the phone, the signal goes up into space and the signal actually encounters or intersects with the most anti-human environment possible, which is the absolute oblivion of space. Um, to the extent that it goes up that high, which sometimes it doesn't, but um, still, n at, at any level there where the satellites are and so forth, it's not a, a pro-human uh, atmosphere. <laughs> so the signal actually intersects with and brings down the oblivion of space into each conversation that we have. So um, we're saying that we overcome space, but still um, aren't our conversations aren't our ways of interacting still containing or including the oblivion of the void um, between us. So in other words, um, in exchange for traversing space that we can breathe in, we've pocketed uh, unbreathable space into every conversation. So there's a deeply anti-human principle in this podcast, in your Zoom conversations. And we can feel it, right? It doesn't feel like being with a person. And part of that, I think, is that absolute oblivion that's uh, stuffed into these, right? So that's another conundrum. What exactly is happening when we talk to another person through a device? Are we overcoming space? Why does it feel different? Why does it feel like something's missing? Could it be that that nothingness has tagged along like a poltergeist. So these are all things that I think about. <laughs> and um, these are all things that I, uh, in one way or another, directly or indirectly, talk about with today's guest, uh, Svechko Horvat. Now, Svechko, uh, if you remember, was on Against Everyone with Connor Beeb 107, and that was almost a year ago, so I hope this becomes an annual tradition. Um, I love Svechko's work. He is not uh, a class reductionist. He's not just into identity politics. Um, in fact, he's the kind of person that is constantly inspiring to me because he brings together strands of many different aspects of being human philosophy art science music poetry activism economics politics nothing is safe <laughs> from his way of apprehending the world and he does this all to try to survey our current our future and our past predicaments um he has a new book out called after the apocalypse uh it's a pretty dizzying and dense book, but by dense, I don't mean hard to read. In fact, uh, most of his prose is quite 
easy and pleasant to read, uh, like his last excellent book, Poetry from the Future. Um, by dense, I mean there's just a lot in it. There's a lot in it that will send your mind into many different directions. The book starts with a series of theses on the apocalypse, which, Svechko reminds us, has already happened. Remember, the apocalypse has happened. People have just been huddling in tents in their living rooms in a freezing Texas evening. The streets are empty. There are lines for groceries at Tesco where the food is all wrapped in plastic and completely sterilized on the outside. There are closed borders. There's the threat of disease. There's riots against uh, murder by the arm of the state, by the authorities, by the cops. This is what it feels like to be in an apocalypse. Those movies that we watch, this is what it feels like to be in the center of one. So, what about after the apocalypse? Can there be an after the apocalypse? What does that mean? And one of the ways that we can begin to understand what comes after is by responding to some of the quandaries that I talked about uh, right at the top. So, <laughs> the way to respond to them is to reinvent everything especially the way we view time, especially the way we view space, especially the way we view the forces that work through our lives and oppress us, that guide us. How do we undo all that? It's going to take creating something entirely new. And that's what we talk about in this episode. And I'm so excited to share it with you. Now, before we start, I just want to say, one of the most amazing things um, since <laughs> this global crisis has begun is the um, amount of people who have been uh, listening, new listeners, new people um, uh, paying attention to the show and having conversations about it and um, how it's sort of working in the world. And I know that that's because it has value to people. Deep conversations, um, contemplating the world um, giving some, uh, a beacon, you know, maybe a lighthouse or, you know, for people to navigate with. It's helpful. And that, knowing that has been really awesome. And if it has that effect for you, if Against Everyone with Connor Beeb has that effect for you, please support it through Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. Um, I do this at the top of every episode, and one of the reasons why is because I don't want sponsors. I don't want to engage with uh, having the show sponsored by corporations that are selling products that I don't give a fuck about um, and that you don't give a fuck about and that really just seem to tarnish the show at the beginning because you're like, I know he doesn't care about um, inflatable furniture. I know he doesn't care about uh, like shoes for your dog or whatever the fuck. No, I mean, look, I'm sure your dog looks cute in shoes, but I know he doesn't care about shoes for a dog. I know they're not aligned with the mission of the show. You know, if I found some sponsors that were completely aligned with this mission um, of this show, which is to inspire really deep conversations, uh, I might go with them. But right now, what I do is I rely on the associative economic relationship, um, the associative cultural relationship that I have with all you who are listening. 
So patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. You can give at any level, any amount that you want each month. And it just goes directly to the show. And it really makes it so much easier to keep the show going, to keep me in touch with all you guys, uh, all that kind of stuff, as well as all the writing and activism and all the other stuff that I'm doing with my life. So if you like this episode, if you've liked the other episodes with Franco Bifo Berardi or theologian uh, Peter Rollins uh, with mutual aid writer and activist Dean Spade, um, you know, with musician and activist Billy Bragg, all that. I mean, just there's so many episodes there. If you like any of those, <laughs> uh, do support the show. Patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. All right. Thanks for listening to this intro. Thanks for thinking about these conundrums, and thanks for going deeper into them with me and Svechko Horvat. Here we go. Hello, everybody. It's Against Everyone with Connor Habib. And hello again, Svechko Horvat. Hello. Hello. I'm really glad to be back. So, okay. I, let's just get right into it because, you know, um, the first time I talked with you, which is about a year ago now, I wanted to sort of call your project a project of time, but I was afraid to because I didn't want you to feel summed up by that uh, by that statement. And yet now you have a book called After the Apocalypse, so I see that actually I was correct all along. And so, um, you know, reading your book, I keep thinking of this quote by Wittgenstein, which is, um, when we think of the world's future, we always mean the destination it will reach if it keeps going in the direction we can see it going in now. It does not occur to us that its path is not a straight line, but a curve constantly changing direction. And, you know, there's a tension there between that quote and uh, different aspects of your book, because, you know, on the one hand, I think what you point out in After the Apocalypse and Poetry from the Future as well, is the need to reconfigure time and yet some of and 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 how we could do that and yet i also think that some of the urgency that's given to you is from a certain kind of time um whether it's a algorithmic uh computer model time about climate crisis whether it's a um whether it's an, an idea of how, th of where things are going with extinction and the finality. And so I'm just a little, I'd like to start there because there's some tension there for me that I'd love to hear from you about. Like, how do you um, reconcile the fact that we're looking for a different kind of time, yet the urgency of our moment is given to us by the kind of time that we don't want anymore? Yeah, it's it, it's a beautiful beautiful question, uh, and uh, also I think it sums up uh, well. Uh, I I would say also the kind of transition I had from poetry from the future, the last book, and after the apocalypse, the new book, which is more about time. And you know, you you are quoting Wittgenstein. Uh, what immediately comes to my mind are two graffitis uh, from the United States. Uh, I think uh, the first one is I think it was made during the pandemic. Uh, and the first one is uh, was uh, no cops, no jails, no linear fucking time. Uh, 
which I, which I really liked. Uh, and the other one, of course, is maybe a bit more famous uh, during the uh, big uh, protests after the brutal death of George Floyd in Minneapolis in May 2020, last year. There was another graffiti simply saying, another world, another end of the world is possible. Uh, uh, and I think, you know, the tension you describe is perfectly embodied in these two graffitis. On the one hand, uh, I think we have to really deconstruct uh, this sort of capitalist notion of time, which is always perceived as progress. You know, the biggest taboo of today is to, to criticize progress. Uh, the, the, the utopia that it's possible uh, to progress from one point in time towards the other point in time, and that it always contains more expansion of global capitalism, more extractivism of uh, natural resources, more extractivism or exploitation of human souls and so on. And I think this first graffiti, no fucking, no linear fucking time, uh, uh, really embodies perfectly what is wrong with this. Uh, because time exists, of course, uh, but uh, as we know from quantum physics, it's a very complicated thing. I, I really love reading Carlo Rovelli, for instance, uh, uh, the Italian uh, uh, I would say even philosopher, although he's a physicist. Uh, uh, so, and the other graffiti kind of, and that's where, where the tension comes from, uh, shows that we are really approaching an end. Uh, uh, now, what is this end? Uh, uh, quite frequently, uh, theorists speak about the Anthropocene uh, uh, in the sense that it's for the first time in the uh, history of the planet uh, that a species can destroy uh, the planet. Uh, I'm rather more aligned uh, to, to the concept of the capitalist scene, you know, that it's not just the humans as such, you or me uh, or my parents or the working class uh, who are destroying the planet, but it's a specific system and it's called capitalism. Uh, and the way to transform or to go beyond capitalism, to reach a sort of post-capitalism, I think we have to start from uh, understanding and deconstructing time itself. And that's why I'm, my, my understanding of time is much closer to uh, the Zapatista, for instance, uh, to poetry, uh, to imagination, uh, to science fiction, uh, uh, where time is uh, uh, conceived in a, completely, uh, in a completely different way. And maybe this is the true time and the, the linear fucking time. Is it, do you think, um, because I'm always sort of, um, like, I obviously appreciate more the idea that capitalism or a, a system or a structure is responsible for the problems that we face. And yet I also think that there's that weird kind of like exportation or, or sort of reification of the concept, you know, that somehow divests us of our responsibility. And so, you know, like Michael Tausig has this book called, um, uh, I think it's called the magic of the state. And he just keeps sort of mulling over this question. Like, why do we entify the state even just to put that capital S in front of it? Like it gives it, it's like its own sort of autonomy. What are we doing here? And, um, you know, and so I think maybe what you're saying is a good way to uh, sort of dissolve that uh, difficulty, which is actually capitalism is the inner experience of a certain kind of time. And if we don't rearrange our experience of that kind of time, we're, we're fucked because we keep creating the world out of that 
phenomena, that ontology, and it just can't work anymore. So actually, it's like, um, <laughs> it's like, so if capitalism is a time sense, then how do we then how do we reinvent our time sense, which is something that I think you go into a lot. And I think there are lots of other people that have tried to grapple with this, you can even say, you know, Freud grappled with it in a sense, because Freud is saying, you know, we used to think that you would know something, and then you'd know the next thing, and it would get rid of the thing before. But actually, we know now that, or we understand now, after Freud, that um, we don't, we're not subjects of knowledge, we're subjects of desires, that actually things spread out in many different directions and contract and come back to us and sort of disappear into our drives and so forth. So I think people have tried to... Uh, you know, figure out different versions or experiences of time. But it seems like that must be part of why this is a big aspect of your project, which is redefining or sort of reinscribing, a, you know, what time is for us. Yeah, I think, I mean, capitalism is so successful precisely because it uh, succeeded to capture desire. As, mm-hmm. as, as you put it, you know, it's uh, not just the political economy. I mean, here... Uh, many leftists uh, are wrong when they uh, constantly insist on the political economy, uh, dismissing something what in French theory uh, would be called libidinal economy, namely the economy which involves desire, the unconscious. Uh, and you can see why the populist right is so successful today. Uh, or take, I mean, the storming of Capitol Hill, for instance, you know. Uh, uh, it was immediately transmitted through social media. It was a kind of planetary performance of the 21st century, uh, and it captured desire. And in a way, it also, as our common friend uh, uh, and philosopher Bifo says, it, uh, uh, about impotence, but impotence in a sense that uh, I think this kind of movements, but also capitalism very often, succeeds to capture uh, the frustration, the anger, impotence in this sense, you know, that you, 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 you are really um, angered uh, by the state of the world or, or by politics or by economy or by losing your job. Uh, and then you, instead of turning it into something sublime, as Freud would, for, for instance, put, you turn it into, you know, this kind of desire to hate the other, desire to, uh, uh, to destroy and so on. Uh, and I think the left hasn't been successful enough in capturing these kind of desires. Uh, uh, that's one problem. Uh, and the other problem is time, I would say also, and the very concept of progress. Uh, I think uh, many, you know, it's, I'm not saying that maybe, you know, in the 20th century socialist systems, uh, it would look different when it comes to the climate uh, and so on. I mean, they were also using fossil fuels. Uh, uh, so I think... Uh, the crucial thing is really to to think about the concept of progress. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, where I'm much closer, of course, to Walter Benjamin, historical materialism, which shows that uh, progress uh, is the very ideology of capitalism. Uh, and progress uh, in today's world, planet, means actually more destruction of inhabitat, uh, extinction, mass extinction, uh, and the destruction of time in a way as well. Uh, but what gives me hope is really this kind of un- other understanding of time, temporality. Uh, if you look, for instance, recently, uh, the, the uh, f- photos from Mars, uh, mm-hmm. uh, which we, which at least me, I'm sure you and many other millions in the world were, were, were looking at, uh, I think it's a really interesting historic moment. In the same way, the landing on the moon was interesting. Uh, uh, in the sense, what Günther Anders uh, uh philosopher who, who is very important also for, for uh, my recent work and after the apocalypse, uh, he wrote a beautiful book called uh, Bleak 
from Mond, uh, The View from the Moon, where he said his thesis is uh, uh, the main historic event which happened when, when people landed on the moon is not, wasn't reaching, you know, this far, uh, far away uh, moon and space travel and so on. The historic and real unique thing in landing on the moon was that for the first time we were able to see ourselves uh, from the moon. Uh, uh, and recently, when, when we saw the photographs from, from Mars, there was one interesting uh, photo, sublime uh, image, I would say, where you could see uh, Earth, Venus, and Jupiter. You know, it's the first mm -hmm. time that you can see Earth as part of the other planets and that slowly our galaxy is being unwieldy. And I think what is, what is interesting here, but also worrying, is that kind of for the first time in, in human history, we don't know whether it's the first time in, in, in our planet's history or our galaxy history, probably not. Uh, but for the first time in human history, humans uh, came to such a level of perfection of machines, uh, including space travel, uh, that at the very same time, they can see uh, our dead planet from another perspective to put it like that you know at the same time when we are capable to do such wonderful things uh, uh, uh we are destroying our planet uh, uh by well more extraction expansion and exploitation uh, uh which i think is really something what what should worry us but it kind of gives me hope because you can see that this is millions of years billions of years you know even there is a chapter in my book on the mediterranean where i uh, speak about the island of Vise. Uh, and uh, it's remarkable when you look into geology and when you understand that, you know, this, this sea where I'm swimming, these uh, beaches uh, uh, are actually results of a mega catastrophe uh, 200 million years ago, a volcanic catastrophe uh, which happened. And now I'm here, you know, maybe I will live 40 years, 80, who knows? It's a very tiny moment in this life, like in Borges, Aleph, the whole universe fits in kind of. Mm -hmm. uh, but and it's part of this universe. And this, I mean, now maybe I sound a bit too esoteric, uh, but this is really what I think is missing. You know, we are cons constantly, as you said, under this urgency, of course. Uh, you cannot even plan the next week anymore because who knows what <laughs> will happen. You know, the third lockdown, the 50th lockdown, whatever, you, you never know. Uh, uh, but I think we, we need this long-term perspective, uh, which is my recent... Yeah, sorry. Yeah, no, no. I, well, there's just a lot to say. Um, I, I, <clears throat> first, I want to say, you know, um, here in Ireland, there's a very recent example of this. So we had these wetlands um, near, near Dublin, or I think in, in Dublin, County Dublin, but the, um, and they had been suddenly like new forms of wildlife or a sort of new uh, ecology of some of the existing wildlife had sort of came to this one spot and people had noticed and they were beginning to take their kids on field trips there and like set those up for school. And then one day these developers came and just poured silt into it like overnight. And it just was gone like overnight like that. And people were just heartbroken. But the really interesting thing was those wetlands were created by uh, there was a murder investigation and they dragged the land and it had filled up with water because they were trying to find evidence. So actually someone being murdered is what led to that place becoming a wetlands, which became deeply valued and then eliminated again overnight. So we always see that interlocking of the kinds of tragedy and, 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 uh, and then the things that we come to value, even as you describes, you know, um, or, or you reference someone describing Chernobyl, 
as uh, and meltdown is beautiful, like this beautiful moment that you you know uh, that that someone saw. But I, you know, and I also want to say, yeah, there's this really interesting thing about um, the the moon landing. So first of all, I <laughs> I was very surprised to hear the the Anders thing because I had actually done an episode, a solo episode of my show where I talked about that somebody going to the moon that actually you know, this was one of the most profound moments was that the person could see the planet. And in fact, I think the astronaut said was going, had his thumb held up and he said, I can't believe everything I've ever known is right behind my thumb, which of course I think is a great, also uh, we can jump to now and see that we use our phones that way and that we tap on everything with our thumb and like search the entire world with it without moving. But I think that that moment, right. It represents the transformation of space, but it didn't transform time. So globalization in some ways is like, uh, we could talk about it as the ultimate transformation of space without really a reappraisal of time. And so now it's like that work is long overdue because obviously so much of what we're experiencing now, you know, when you bring up the Spanish flu or whatever is, or, or the famine or the black plague, so much of what we're experiencing now is being experienced with the sense of the entire planet. And, um, and so that's the big difference is that we're carrying around the globe with us. And that is also the big difference in our view of apocalypse and everything as well. So it does seem to me that the spatiality, um, which is, you know, scientifically a dimension below time, whatever that means, but (laughs) the spatiality has changed but we haven't done that work with time. And maybe the Mars thing will change it. Maybe actually like adding more space will force somehow a change of time. And then we'll have to catch up to that, (laughs) that new version of space or something like that. Um, But you do, I mean, you do write about uh, spatiality a bit, but I'm wondering what you think about that sort of discord between the two. Yeah. First, I would love to start from, from the, planet from the planet itself was what you mentioned because i think what is what is unique uh well it started in the 20th century of course uh, not just with space exploration but with hiroshima uh, i would say uh with you know the first nuclear bomb uh, used uh, on civilian territory this great tragedy uh, it's for the first time that uh, we got this kind of understanding of the planetary uh, because uh, this kind of event, again, as Gunther Anders said, uh, uh, he said Hiroshima is everywhere. And when Chernobyl happened, he said Chernobyl is everywhere. And today you could add and say Fukushima is everywhere. In the same way, COVID-19 is everywhere. So it can be a pandemic. Uh, it can be radioactivity. Uh, it can be uh, an asteroid. It doesn't matter. But we are really at the verge of not apocalypse, because I define apocalypse as the revelation, but the, the verge of a tremendous change, uh, which will which will include both space and time, and, and it's interesting uh, that today I think the relation towards the world is not enough anymore. Uh, in the same way, you know, if you if you look back a few centuries, people would usually relate to their village, and like ninety percent people never left their village. Uh, later, they would relate to their city, later to their country, and then the nation state, which is a pretty recent uh, invention, you know, going back maybe a few centuries, in some countries uh, even less. 
uh, and then later people would relate to the world as such. And then humanity created global institutions, you know, from the World Bank, U United Nations, uh, uh, International Monetary Fund, and so on. Uh, but what is still missing, I think, is, is this relation towards the planet. Uh, because if you look at today's space exploration, for instance, I was amazed that, you know, the rover which landed on Mars, uh, that it was driven by nuclear energy, for instance. Uh, so, and that NASA even said that they are planning to develop rockets which will be fueled on nuclear energy, and that some of those rockets would even bring nuclear reactors to Mars or the moon. And then you can again pose the questions, okay, we, we got so fucking far. We got so far that we can travel to space, we can travel to, 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 to the moon, we can travel to Mars, we can even go there, and maybe in a few decades some people might live there. Uh, but everything has to change so that nothing changes. We will bring our nuclear reactors to Mars, uh, we will have touristic trips to Mars, we will have the, what I call the commodification of the apocalypse, like with space travel and, you know, with this becoming a very trendy topic, uh, while, you know, uh, the, 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 the Earth will be under several meters of uh, uh, rising sea levels, it will be <laughs> polluted, radioactive, uh, from microplastics to pandemics and so on. And it's really interesting to look at the recent science fiction movies, for instance, uh, 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 on Netflix, for instance, this one, Midnight Sky, or something like that with uh, George Clooney, uh, uh, which is, uh, you know, that recently these space movies are becoming very popular, and a lot of them are coming from Hollywood or Netflix. So this one with George Clooney, where basically Earth was destroyed by a nuclear disaster and then there is a spaceship traveling uh, uh, finding another planet or Mars actually which is inhabitable uh, uh, and George Clooney tries to warn them never to return back to Earth and again you have this perspective on Earth mm -hmm. uh, which is not this beautiful image from the moon or now from Mars but is completely destroyed and then there's this other one which is a Korean movie called Space Sweepers uh, which actually imagines this future where you know capitalism will would come to such a stage that we would even treat the space itself, the universe, in the same way we treated, uh, uh, you know, the slaves or the exploration of the oceans, uh, privatizing the sea, privatizing the air, uh, and then we will also start privatizing the space and collect, extract valuable materials from space. And I think this is the crucial problem, that it's very, it's very difficult to imagine that even if we reach Mars, that it would look, different from Earth and from the relations on Earth, where, you know, Elon Musk now is the richest person on planet Earth uh, who can do speculation uh, just by tweeting uh, or putting Bitcoin in his Twitter and so on. And I think this is a really unique moment in human history where, again, we have this capability uh, to change the world even by a single sign, you know, in a semiotical, semiotic sense, just putting a sign on Twitter can change the course of history. Uh, or you can have someone uh, reaching out like Capitol Hill, uh, uh, coming very close to nuclear football, uh, uh, to, you know, just pushing the, the, the button and, well, annihilating the world in a nuclear disaster. So this is our reality today. And I would say that, you know, time, not just space, because space is also annihilated in a way. And we see it with the acceleration provided by technology, uh, by you know, all sorts of technology like this one now that we can talk from remote parts of the world like simultaneously, instantly, and that it can reach other people. Uh, uh, but you can see it also in other examples. And I think that this is the problem. 
on the one hand, space is annihilated, but at the same time, if you look at radioactivity, for instance, uh, uh, time itself is changing because, you know, plutonium, for instance, uh, will stay radioactive and the radioactive decay can last for several thousands of years. So we are kind of leaving some sort of nuclear pyramids uh, to the future and we don't know who will be in that future, whether humanity will be alive or there will be some other species which will have to look back five, ten thousand years and understand what were, what were these crazy, what was this crazy other species doing and why were they burying all the, all the nuclear waste? Why were they polluting oceans? Uh, why, why were they leading to this sort of ontological uh, uh, mutation, to put it like that, or even metaphysical mutation? Because if you look, for instance, at the Marshall Islands, uh, which is the heaviest uh, 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 nuclear, nuclear, you know, that was the place where most of the nuclear tests took place after Hiroshima, actually. Uh, and it's a very interesting place. I mean, this is the reason why, why, why there is a, uh, image of the Marshall mm -hmm. Islands on the cover of after, a, after the apocalypse, uh, because I think you have this kind of here, you have the best embodiment of the collision between the nuclear age and the climate climate age, which which mm -hmm. is, I think, a unique event, uh, which wasn't there in the 19th century, in the 10th century, or in the time of ancient Greeks or Buddha or whoever. You know, I think this is really unique. Look at Marshall Islands. It's just one meter above the sea level. Uh, you have a sinking island and you have nuclear waste, which is already uh, kind of becoming part of the ocean. And I think here the spatial, temporal mm -hmm complex is really changing and we are not even even able to understand it you know because it's so complex it's really yeah. changing the reality itself yeah i think maybe the only thing i could think of that was a bit of an analog for that was uh, the holocaust and then the 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 uh, bomb being dropped on uh, hiroshima and nagasaki like there was the sort of gradual man manual labor analog version of genocide and then there was like the tech genocide right it was like both these sets you know and they were both this huge um you had this huge kind of explosion um in the face of humanity but i was thinking you know then you know reading your book there's so much about this like you know imagine the dead of the future there are these two books by this American writer who's a fantastic writer, William T. Volman. He wrote these two books on climate change. Uh, it's called the Carbon Ideologies series, and it probably would have been one book, but they're about 3,000 pages each. No immediate danger and no good alternative. And it's a letter to people in the future, and it's a constant, a constantly apologetic letter and a plea for also like understanding, like, can't you understand that we loved our refrigerators? Can't you understand that like this is what, you know? And it's kind of, it's kind of, um, it's, it's very, in some ways, charming book, even though it's absolutely brutal. And, um, but, it made me think, I talked about this with Bifo a little bit when he was on the show, um, but it made me think about, uh, you know, from my perspective, the morality and the importance of reincarnation as a narrative for us. Because, like, um, so the way Rudolf Steiner describes reincarnation, which I love, is he says, you know, if, it's as if you're standing on a balcony holding a flower pot and you drop it and then you run down the steps and let it hit you on the head, right? And then, you know, so at once it, it, it erases the memory, but also you've done the damage to yourself, right? So it's this image that, um, 
you will be constantly creating the damage for who you will become again in the future. So, you know, um, in that sense, in the sense of reincarnation, there's a moral aspect there, which means that there's actually no escape. Like even death does not relieve us. In some ways, you know, I really sometimes read nuclear apocalypse narratives as like, kind of, I'm like, oh, this is just too easy. Like, this is just the easy way out. Because actually, the real horror is that we'll continue to live, not that we'll all be completely eliminated, but that we'll go on and on. And, and you know, that could happen in a lot of ways. You know, maybe we're just reborn and keep reincarnating into this post-apocalyptic um you know, like nuclear fallout wasteland, or maybe it's that, you know, this singularity thing brought on by, you know, Elon Musk in, in conjunction with Ray Kurzweil and Google and all this kind of stuff will actually just turn us into these computer-like beings that live for, you know, 500 years instead of like, you know, almost 100. And that like we reincarnate into these complete blob bodies that just go on and on. And so I think actually... <laughs> the the uh the the apocalypse is like it's a challenge it's a challenge for us because like we won't die not because we will like if we are to treat not the imagined people in the future who will die because of us as our responsibility but rather if we treat ourselves as our own children you know i will be born again um into a new body what do i what do i do what's my responsibility for who i will be when i come back and that, um, I mean, either way, we could take it either way, because both of them <laughs> disrupt our notion of time, both of them, uh, both of these uh, versions, you know, uh, bring a kind of responsibility. But uh, the horror of life continuing is also really terrifying <laughs> to me, in a way. And I don't know if that's, uh, if that ends, because there, there's so much in here about, um, in, in After the Apocalypse, about moving towards oblivion. But actually, I, I also fear we're never granted it, you know? Where, where, where to start? I, uh, <laughs> what you said about reincarnation uh, reminds me of, of Nietzsche's eternal return, of course, you know, that if you imagine that all the horrors, uh, but also all the joys you experienced in life will repeat itself again and again, like a sort of Groundhog Day. Uh, uh, and his answer to it, to, I mean, usually this would provoke and it also provoked anxiety in, 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 in Nietzsche, utter horror, you know. Uh, but he decided to look into the abyss. Uh, and then his answer was Amor Fati, uh, which I think still holds true even today, uh, especially with, you know, okay, the pandemic is definitely not something like a nuclear uh, uh, planetary cat cat catastrophe, uh, but uh, the pandemic also left this sense of going through a never-ending Groundhog Day uh, where if you constantly worry and worry and worry every day, uh, I think you won't die of the virus, but you will die of utter anxiety or depression. Uh, so uh, maybe Amor Fati is again an answer to this, uh, in the sense that, uh, yes, we have to be aware that uh, the horrors might repeat itself indefinitely, and they are actually repeating themselves indefinitely, uh, even from the perspective of quantum physics, where there is no past and no future, but just a kind of eternal present with parallel universes and so on. Uh, if that's true, I think our only response is a sort of amorphati, you know, uh, what Huxley Huxley says, for instance, in his final, not so much dystopian, but utopian novel, The Island, when, you know, there are these kind of birds 
uh, which come and sort of parrots and come and say here and now, attention here and now, in the sense that we have to have this long-term perspective, but live here and now, you know, even find small joys, uh, find s- small gestures of solidarity, which can be mountains for some people. And I think this is our current tension, you know, this constant knowing that an end is approaching, but at the same time, we have to live here and now. Uh, so that would be my first response to what response to what you just said. Because we are, I think we are in this kind of moment uh, today. Yeah, well, <clears throat> I mean, you're bringing up another thing that I w- was thinking as I read your book, which is that there are so many aspects of planetary destruction, like uh, overfishing the seas, uh, salinity in the oceans, deforestation, pollution, uh, you know, the destruction of rivers and, you know, all the, so on and so forth. And these are all very uh, material conditions that we can point to. In some ways, and I wonder about this in your book, and I hope that this comes across all right, or not too much of a challenge, but the <clears throat> there's a thing about climate change in which, uh, and, and focusing on climate change and numbers and algorithms and models that for me obscures the material conditions that are actually up to us to change and do something about. And it becomes to me a sort of aesthetic. And I sometimes wonder, like an aesthetic that causes people to feel a certain way about those other material conditions that sort of enrobes them in numbers and statistics in a way that makes us less likely to do something about it. And I sometimes wonder, if I can extend this a little bit more, if it's a kind of aesthetic that's inherited from a sort of view of the world that relates to a failed project of communism. Like, in other words, we didn't, we didn't save the world from capitalism using this alternative that was presented to us. So now the world must die. Like now there's no alternative. Now it's all sort of falling apart. And, um, and we can show you that by pointing to this fact and this fact and this fact. And I, and I found that like a, a bit challenging about the book because I, you know, I know in poetry of the future, there, from the future, there's so much um, movement into praise of joy and pleasure in a way that seems sort of absent in this in this book, or a little bit more, even though you point out moments of, of beauty and appreciation of things. And so I'm just wondering how that all resonates with you, if that goes anywhere for you, or if you're just like, fuck you, Connor, I don't, like, no, that's not, <laughs> which is also totally okay. <laughs> No, you have a good point, and I, I actually feel like that as well. You know, if I would say maybe the poetry from the future could be interpreted as a sort of gospel, uh, while this new book is much more closer to the original apocalypse, uh, in the sense, you know, that John of Patmos, uh, John of Patmos, who wrote uh, the apocalypse uh, on the island of, on the Greek island of Patmos, where he was expelled uh, from the Roman Empire. Uh, and a few centuries later, well, the Roman Empire uh, uh, was also went into dissolution. Uh, so in this sense, you know, if you look at the gospel, the gospel was, you know, the gospel is usually uh, full of joy, uh, full of hope. Uh, but if you read John of Patmos, is a completely crazy book uh, full of uh, uh, all sorts of events. But what is interesting, it's a book about something collective. It's a book about something popular. Well, the gospel is much more individual, I would say. That's the difference. Uh, but you're certainly right, I would say, that the poetry from the future is much more hopeful than this book. Uh, but again, I think the hopeful thing is precisely in its title, After the Apocalypse. Uh, mm. The main point being that uh, 
the end of the world didn't happen yet. Uh, uh, maybe it did happen in the sense that we don't know it yet. Uh, uh, that these sorts of tipping points, as they call it in uh, climate science, were already reached, and we are already looking at the consequences uh, and cannot stop it anymore. That's also possible. Uh, uh, what I liked, what you just said, is uh, you know I am I am also not sure that the current the current tactics or strategy of the climate movement uh, is correct uh, when they are very often insisting on listening to the science. Uh, I love science, all sorts of sciences, uh, but I don't think that our current planetary catastrophe can be solved by science. Uh, uh, and I don't think that, uh, although we need science, of course, but we need poetry, we need imagination, we need a sort of utopian thinking, uh, which uh, you very often find in arts, uh, in literature, in science fiction, and so on. And I think this is what we need today. You know, if, if the climate movement really wants to be successful, we need much more of that. Like maybe in the sort of, uh, in the form of what the Russian futurists were doing, for instance, definitely not what the Italian futurists were doing, uh, but <laughs> the Russian ones. Uh, and I think this is what is missing today. But we also need a sort of imagination which would go beyond, uh, It's because it's not just the utter climate crisis, which we can see every day, you know, uh, 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 from wildfires to, to uh, the pollution of our seas and the oceans to, you know, spring, uh, a day, a few days ago, at, uh, sitting in, 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 in Croatia was 25 degrees, uh, which is the record, I think, uh, Stockholm as well. And you can see that the weather is going completely crazy and it will go even crazier. Uh, but we also have to go a step further to understand the nuclear threat. Uh, to understand all other what I call eschatological tipping points, because it's not just climate tipping points, uh, permafrost, rising sea levels, uh, CO2 pollution, and so on. It's also other uh, eschatological threats, uh, which are not just existential threats, they are ontological threats, because they are changing the reality itself, mm -hmm. uh, so to say. They are changing the... That's why I write, for instance, about uh, Ballard and, and, and his... Uh, his writings uh, about the nuclear tests, which kind of changed the very form of reality. Mm. Maybe that's the reason why it's not such a hopeful book, to be completely honest, <laughs> because it's really difficult to understand it. It's really something which goes beyond our natural experience. It goes beyond mm. time itself, space itself. Yeah, and yeah. we, you know, <clears throat> I mean, I think that that's, that's something that you point out. It's one of your theses, actually. Um, I forget which one, but basically you say, um, oh, yeah, here it is. It says, thesis nine, our only choice today is a radical reinvention of the world or mass extinction, right? Um, and, uh, you know, in some ways, again, I would say that mass extinction has already happened as well in the sense that without the radical reinvention of the world, we're stuck in this worldview, which is a very materialistic dead matter and motion kind of worldview of things. And that's obviously that kind of, uh, you know, uh, devivifying effect of how we view the world right now is not working. And that is a combination of capitalism, scientific materialism, a certain kind of religious fundamentalism and so on and so forth. But I think, I, you know, when I was talking about communism before, you know, and thinking about it in relation to environmentalism, there is a kind of like, 
handing it over, like if we call it climate change, instead of talking about the individual aspects of the anatomy of this problem, um, we're kind of, we, we have no choice but to hand it over to the state and to the experts who employ a certain kind of science to solve the problem. And so you have stuff like Bill Gates, who just it's like now gotten permission to do this test run of putting particles in the ionosphere to block the sun, which is just of calcium carbonate, which, by the way, uh, I found out, um, I found this little thing that Rudolf Steiner wrote in like 1910, where he said, if anybody ever ends up putting limestone in space to block out the sun, it will utterly destroy the human spirit in an irreversible way. So we have this like we have these little funny warnings from him every, from time to time but i thought you know maybe this has something to do with you saying recently um i heard you on a a, a podcast um at, where, where you said you know I've, I've been thinking more about anarchism lately even though i'm part of this democracy in europe movement like actually my mind has turned to anarchism a bit and i think maybe i wonder if that's because it allows more space than uh, democracy or socialism or whatever it seems to for a kind of joy, for a kind of uh, variation, um, for a kind of uh, 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 constant increase in concepts and play and, uh, you know, multiplicity and that sort of stuff that would combat these uh, poor solutions and this just sort of turning it over to the state, but actually bringing it to uh, individuals forming uh, you know, communities and, and so forth. Yeah, I have a personal revelation to make. Uh, I really loved your uh, TV show with uh, Ian McKay, mm. if you remember that one, uh, with uh, one of the founders of, uh, well, the cult, cult punk hardcore band, band <laughs> Minor Threat. Uh -huh. And I must admit that, you know, I before I came to, you know, I, I grew up in post-communism in, 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 in a country which was collapsing in the 90s, namely socialist Yugoslavia. Uh, and uh, before starting to read or to understand what really happened to Yugoslavia, uh, I was basically drawn into anarchism and the hardcore punk scene, even playing in a hardcore band and translating Peter Kropotkin when I was 16. What was the name of your uh, hardcore band? It was called Resume. Okay. <laughs> it was Resume. Re Resume, and we were playing some sort of uh, new school hardcore, like influenced by Snapcase. Uh, <laughs> All right. I mean, mentioning Ian, mentioning Ian McKay, you will smile even more because he was the one minor threat, of course, uh, invented straight edge. Uh, and uh, our band at the beginning was uh, vegan, straight edge, you know, no alcohol, no drugs, and so on. Which, which is quite a funny, but I think it kind of saved my life as well because I learned a kind of balance uh, with these things. Uh, and, uh, but it really infected my worldview because when we were kids, you know, this is post-communist, you know, the war was just over some places in Yugoslavia. It wasn't over yet. Uh, and uh, we were listening again to, to, you know, East Coast, West Coast, hardcore, playing music, translating uh, Emma Goldman, Malatesta, Kropotkin, Bakunin, and so on. And it's really funny that so many years later now with the current pandemic, uh, you actually have a big comeback of the ideas of Peter Kropotkin, mm -hmm. like mutual aid, uh, or also <coughs> this experience, like for instance now in Croatia, because Croatia wasn't just hit by a pandemic. Uh, last year it was hit uh, by several really strong earthquakes. 
uh, and uh, I experienced the shaking as well. It, it was quite often last year. Uh, and uh, mm -hmm. then you see that also as a result to this kind of catastrophes, you, you, you have this comeback of mutual aid, uh, uh, cooperation, uh, helping other people, uh, but also sorts of creating autonomous zones, you know, speaking mm -hmm. of anarchism. Uh, and you put it correctly. I mean, I would love to return to, to, to a discussion on communism as well and maybe what went wrong in Yugoslavia uh, or what are the lessons which can be learned out of the experience of Yugoslav self-management and the anti-fascist struggle, uh, which are really useful for today. Uh, but what is interesting also, I would say, is how the very concept of the state came back with the pandemic. Uh, uh, so on the one hand, of course, you have, you mentioned Bill Gates, we could mention Jeff Bezos and how much money Amazon earned. You can, you, we could mention Elon Musk, but what you can also in space exploration and space travel, what you have is this kind of sim symbiosis of, of the state and the corporations of, of state and capitalism. And then you go, you, you look at the world today, one year after the after the pandemic started, uh, or one year after our conversation, this is a sort of anniversary, you know. And what 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 you see there that in this year, uh, the the state came back in a way. You have all this vaccine nationalism all around Europe. You have the geopolitics of or geopolitics of uh, of vaccines, for instance, where you know China and Russia are slowly penetrating the European Union, and then the UK. And Serbia are the first one in in the in Europe uh, when it comes to the rollout of the vaccine, which is a symptom of the incompetence of the European Union and so on. And you you can see that nationalism is coming back. You can see that most of the countries were also introducing a sort of state of exception uh, with uh, a sort of biopolitics, uh, uh, you know, through constant surveillance, uh, using uh, manipulating the bodies. Mm -hmm. Of people preventing the bodies of people and so on. Of course, it's very difficult. It's very dangerous not to slide into conspiracy theory. Uh, but I think you know what Giorgio Agamben, the Italian philosopher, was warning. Uh, although he also had some points with which I don't agree, <laughs> but I think his main point was that whatever the source of the pandemic, uh, uh, whether you know it was made in a laboratory, whether it's dangerous or not, whatever you know, uh, what is true is are the effects of the pandemic, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, in a similar way, it's not important so much anymore uh, how did 9-11 really happen? Was it an inside job or something else and so on? Uh, but what is important is the kind of measures we, ha we had after 9-11 in airports, the kind of foreign interventions the United States did after 9-11 and so on. And I would say in this sense also we have this return of the state uh, mm. A sort of techno feudalism, or maybe that's not the most precise term, but uh, it could be surveillance capitalism. Uh, uh, I prefer BFO, where he talks about you know a sort of techno mutation, uh, uh, or even uh, Maurizio Lazzarato, another philosopher mm -hmm. close to BFO, actually who talks uh, about machinic enslavement. And in this kind of situation, yes, what is what is being lost is play. What is being lost is uh, being spontaneous. What is being lost is contingency, which you can, cannot really get in clubhouse, for instance, which is uh, pretty popular now, uh, or uh, through this kind of social media. Uh, you you can get it in different ways. And I think the meaning of communism, not just the experience of communism, but the very meaning of communism, I think, is uh, very important today. Uh, because I understand communism much closer to, for instance, Michael Hart uh, or Antonio Negri, who who related to the commons. Uh, you know, it, right. it doesn't. It, 
I think, you know, we, to, and that's also why I'm rereading anarchism today, because I think the state is not, uh, the nation state was never a solution. Uh, and uh, the nation state uh, will perhaps die in a few decades. At least Croatia, for instance, which now has 4 million inhabitants, but until the end of, two, of 200, uh, 2,100, it will have 2 million inhabitants and so on. So nation states, what, what will it mean? You know, the demography of Europe is, it's a continent which is growing old and so on. And what, will we still stick to this kind of national identities and speak about our glorious past of past wars and, and whatever? Uh, uh, so I think the state is also very problematic uh, a concept which communism also didn't succeed to solve, uh, you know, with creating a big state apparatus, bureaucracy, uh, 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 and all these other things. Uh, uh, so I think what we have to redefine today, I think, is the speciality, speciality in the sense of maybe creating not just a utopia, but what Michel Foucault called heterotopia, you know, a space which is, uh, uh, which is trying to protect the commons, but commons understood not only as natural resources, but commons, you know, I would understand time itself as right. commons. I would understand as he, as even Illich put it in a beautiful text, silence as commons, uh, especially in this era where there is no silence. Uh, we are constantly talking and constantly listening and constantly being bombarded. But then we also have to perceive the space and Mars and moon as commons. We have to perceive emotions, love as commons. And I think, uh, uh a way to, manage these commons uh, is not necessarily the state and maybe the state is also uh, a very bad form uh, or solution to govern or manage the commons and actually we shouldn't manage the commons we should protect the commons so right. i think this mm -hmm. is when 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 you say communism i would go to the theory of commons yeah i mean i love i love that i mean I, you know i think hard and negri more and more i mean i think we have to I think people owe them a big apology, right? For like the kind of resistance that they've encountered all along when actually they've described the situation perfectly. I don't, I don't, you know, I mean, I had Michael Hart on the show and I have some of the stuff out with him. Like I don't necessarily agree with all their analyses and what, where they think they should go, but you're absolutely, I think, right in, in saying that that kind of commons, that commonwealth that they write about is really beautifully stated, that it's a commons that's based on strategy, tactics, um, ways of finding pleasure, ways of, uh, you know, just like aspects of knowledge, you know, everything that can be found in a library, all of that is commons. It's not just, uh, you know, as you said before, it can't, it's not just reducible to political economy that can be handed over to the state to regulate in a certain way. And I think that that's something, you know, we, we, you know, the, <laughs> the, the idea that, um, we just need new solutions for old problems. It's not, it's not as simple as that. Actually, the problems have to be overhauled and reseen and re-identified. And, you know, I think, uh, in, until we do that, you know, we, we will have these sort of false, <laughs> these kinds of false sets. Like, how do I say this? There's this, uh, Michel Serres said something like, uh, what did he say? I have it written down. Oh yeah. The spectacle demands as many games with two players as possible, right? Like always we want to see communism, capitalism, or we want to see feminism, patriarchy, or in the US, the easy one to spot always is Democrats versus Republicans or whatever. But we have these false equations, these false sets that 
you know, we are being asked to actually create something new now. And it's really baffling and really difficult. And the first step in that is definitely an anarchist Kropotkin, even though that's old in a way, but to do that in a new way, um, mutual aid project, I think, because all the things that can flourish and grow out of the new connectivity of just talking to your neighbor, meeting somebody new, you know, and I think that the move that the state is making is the absolute sort of austere uh opposite of that this public health utopia where you know there's a, you know everything is just sort of clean and sanitized is a great way for me to sort of look at it and it's a way of seizing the impulse in the US for instance of wanting universal health care well sure we'll give it to you and this is what it looks like like lockdown is universal health care great now it's all it's it's all on you guys but you know we have um Actually, you know, you mentioned Ivan Illich, and he has this quote too, which is, I'm just quoting people constantly in this one, but um, beyond a critical level of intensity, institutional healthcare, no matter if it takes the form of cure, prevention, or environmental engineering is equivalent to system systematic health denial. Like, we actually end up destroying what makes people healthy, what makes life worth living at a certain point. And for me, as a gay man, if I would use that term, I don't always, but as shorthand, a gay man who, you know, grew up just sort of after being affected by the, the AIDS crisis, but still knowing lots of people who died of, you know, of AIDS. Um, it's really frustrating to see that 30 years of a community in the world navigating how to deal with a health crisis that was far more deadly, honestly, than this one, you know, in its, in its uh, impact, um, and that would kill you if you had sex, like, and, and, and our community deciding, okay, well, I'm going to navigate this not by destroying the things that have value to me and not by just scaring the shit out of everybody, but having a kind of honest community-based individual communication that is based on my principle of what constitutes risk for me and an informed risk for others. And that, of course, has been completely not brought into this at all because of homophobia, among other things. But to me, I bring that up because it's the opposite of this kind of austere public health utopia where it's like, no, no, look, yeah, we might die, but we're going to fuck anyway, right? Like we're still going to do this. <laughs> so we've got to figure out the way that we're going to experience pleasure because I'm not going to destroy value um, just to give uh, myself over to public health that's coupled with a state that ultimately does not give a fuck about me. You know, it might give a fuck about me in so much as it can pair with corporations that can make money off of, uh, you know, a, a sort of a, a state mandated pharmaceutical plan. So it's very complicated, but I do find in anarchism, the, you know, um, more of the leanings towards the ability to experience pleasure, the ability to come up with something new entirely. And I think that that's the impulse, right. Of, of, of your work is, um, let's do something else. We've got to do something new. Like the old options are not working for us anymore. It doesn't mean we can't be inspired by them or can't bring them into what we're doing. Uh, so when you were saying before, it's difficult to describe. It's because you're proposing. <laughs> I mean, the, the proposition is always more difficult than the critique, you know? 
Yeah, I mean, you said that we are constantly creating uh, new solutions for for old problems, and I think this is you know this this is precisely the problem. Uh, Evgeny Morozov, for instance, talks about technological solutionism. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you mentioned singularity earlier. Uh, this uh, utopia that humanity or capitalism will always find a find a solution for every problem. So we will do uh, geoengineering. Uh, you know, block the sun or create winds or create the atmosphere and so on. Uh, uh, but I think there is also something which is not just the old problems, but also the new problems or what Donald Rumsfeld uh, said, the unknown unknowns. You know, how will you, uh, how will you create solutions for the unknown unknowns? And definitely they will not come from just repeating the past, but from what I call poetry from the future, uh, which doesn't mean that we have to diminish the past or uh, just uh, say whatever happened and all the failures or even of socialist systems we have to you know put it it put in the dustbin of history uh, no i think we have to at the same time kind of draw our poetry from the future and be inspired by by something new by an experiment which can create something beyond what was created before but we should we should also cherish what was created before and kind of fulfill the unfulfilled potentialities of some previous social experiments. Uh, so when you speak about universal healthcare, uh, I understand it differently because in socialist Yugoslavia, uh, it wasn't connected to, to, you know, to the capitalist companies and uh, pharmaceutical mm. uh, monopolies, uh, which are so influential today. Uh, it was connected to an idea that you need something like, uh, a sort of people's healthcare, you know, in the sense that uh, you create a network of uh, solidarity, mutual aid, which is, of course, more institutionalized uh, and uh, it's uh, being managed by the state. Uh, but it was so much more successful than what we have currently in the desert of post-socialism, uh, uh, where you have a sort of privatized healthcare, where Croatia is incapable to produce vaccines, for instance, while you know, Yugoslavia was part of the non-aligned movement uh, and it could produce everything from a refrigerator to, to a ship. Whether we have to produce, that's also a good question uh, and continue with it. But what I want to say is that I agree with you, we will definitely have to find new forms of lives, uh, new forms of social uh, uh, social uh, composition, new, li- new forms of uh, societies, new forms of uh, relations, not just towards the humans, but new sorts of relations towards the animals, towards mm-hmm. the other species, new sorts of relations towards time, towards space. Uh, so what I, what I would say, maybe that sounds a bit ambitious, uh, uh, but what we need today is not just having very strong local or even micro-local uh, experiences or building different societies, you know, in the here and the now, whether it's uh, Rojava or it is the Zapatista movement uh, or it is a circle of your friends with whom you create uh, a sort of real existing heterotopia. Uh, uh, but we will also have to need reinvent internationalism, which I think is already a pretty problematic term because it counts Mm-hmm. on the nations. I think we need a sort of transnationalism, which would go beyond the nations. And then at the same time, you also need a sort of intertemporality or transtemporality where, you know, because usually 
the social movements uh, uh, go into the understanding of space. But I think to come back to the beginning of our conversation, we also have to go in the direction of time. So to understand that what we need today more than ever is a sort of intergenerational uh, transmitting of knowledge, which can transmit knowledge thousands of years, uh, 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 whether through language, whether through architecture, whether through uh, uh, spirituality. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, we need this sort of relation to time itself. And I think this is the most difficult thing, of course, because... Well, as we know from, from the famous capitalist proverb, uh, time is money and everyone is uh, chasing money and we live in this kind of capitalist time, temporality, 24-7 capitalism, uh, and no one anymore has the time or ability to think of this sort of time. And I would say our own responsibility uh, to communicate with the future generations and not only to communicate, but to leave a world behind, a planet behind. I think this is our biggest responsibility today. Yeah. How to do it? Uh, well, I think definitely anarchism, anarchism is one way. I think radical transnationalism is another way. Mm -hmm. uh, not just by trying to recreate global or planetary institutions. I think this is certainly not enough, you know, uh, uh, in the sense of, I don't know, infiltrating the International Monetary Fund and create a better International Monetary Fund. I don't believe in that. Uh, because it already follows the very concept of progress, which I think is the source of all prog problems. Progress. Mm -hmm. Yeah, although that, that the the disruption of uh, the stock market earlier this year was, I think, a good example of uh, destroying a certain kind of flow of capitalist anxiety and redistributing how people experience time and money as one. I mean, that was really an exciting moment. It almost it almost really did something really huge. I mean, whatever, whatever, I mean, I don't know all the details and I don't completely understand the GameStop thing, but it was still, uh, I think, rather exciting. I mean, <clears throat> what you're talking about sometimes, so I, I've said to people before, like, sometimes I think it's good if you've had a difficult childhood to just sort of look back, you know, think, think about that kid that you were, and if you like where you are now, send a message back in time to that kid and be like, hey, you're really smart because you got me here. You know more than you think you know. And in other words, like look back on yourself and send yourself a message through time. And maybe actually that message is what got you through to become to be where you are. And the reason why I bring that up is we need to liberate the past, you know, simultaneously. It's not just about drawing from the future, but also sending something back into the past that liberates it. We talked about this a little bit the first time we spoke, because we were talking about, I mean, you, you had mentioned Heidegger and Nietzsche and people that had been either appropriated by fascism or became, you know, Nazis themselves or whatever. But I've been thinking about it a lot because, uh, you know, uh, and I mentioned this when we talked before too, because some people have, uh, you know, mis misunderstood Rudolf Steiner and said, "Oh, well, like he was a proto-Nazi or something like that," which is completely untrue. But and, and most serious religious scholars will say. But the but I've been trying to think about. Okay, so what is this impulse? What what are people trying to say? Oh, he said these sort of essentialist statements. How do we deal with that? And, and how does it relate to what we're talking about? Well, I was thinking about how 
even if we even if a thinker hasn't said anything problematic in the past even if the even if our heroes whether it's Karl Marx or or, or Lenin or Rudolf Steiner or someone else we need to still liberate them from the past for them to be valuable to us now. Because even if they were great, even if everything they said was awesome, they still were facing their world and their context, and they therefore can't be useful to us. And here I turn to something Steiner himself said, which is like, if someone were to paint the, the if, if, if Michelangelo were to paint the Sistine Chapel ceiling today, we should rightfully ridicule it because it does not apply to us. Actually, what makes it really beautiful and potent is that all the currents of history are flowing into it. And that's why still it's powerful to us because we see a certain form embedded in it. And so um, when we look to the past, we also have to liberate everything that we want from the past. We can't just take it with us. You know, Um, if we do, it's like the fairy tale where you go through and you meet a fairy and they give you gold and then you leave the fairy kingdom and you just have crumbs in your pockets. Like it doesn't work through the passage of one place to the next. You actually have to transmute it to be make it useful. And so that's also the challenge I think is like, how do we send back um, the right impulse to the past to liberate it, to actually make it useful for what we are now, rather than just naively thinking we can, you know, take it and 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 bring it with us as just as it is, because that doesn't work either. And that's also seems to be part of your project, you know, also seems to be part of, but you don't write about it. So directly, I don't think, I mean, you did write about it a little bit in the Euro, book about Europe um, with Zizek, but um, that, that's really the only place I, I see sort of hints of that, but I know it's there. Sure. And I would actually say that some parts of this are actually present in, in, in this most recent book, after the apocalypse, you know, I, I, I write about, yes, for instance, I write about the human interference task force, uh, which was this very weird but uh, amazing group of people uh, who were asked, uh, most of them were semioticians, anthropologists, uh, philosophers, and so on, linguists, who were asked to create a message in the bottle to the future generation oh. about, uh, uh, about nuclear waste. And I think it poses precisely this question, as you say, I mean, moving towards the future, uh, what kind of means can we use today which will make any sort of sense in the future, whether it's a building, architecture, whether it's a poem, in which language do we transmit this knowledge? Do we transmit it in English or do we transmit it in Chinese? Uh, Do we transmit it in language or do we transmit it in music? And I think these are the questions uh, uh, which kind of pose the question about the future. But when you speak about the past, uh, certainly I think we have to liberate the past from the past itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, some very often. Or when you when you mention uh, Rudolf Steiner, for instance, uh, I would add Ivan Illich. Uh, uh, maybe I would even add Ernst Junger. Uh, uh, you know, I don't agree uh, with uh, the political inclinations of Ernst Jünger, uh, but it doesn't, this doesn't prevent me to read him and to find something interesting, something useful, something where I can liberate himself from himself, to put it like that. Uh, mm-hmm. Or also, very often today, Ivan Illich is being dismissed, as you know, he, he wasn't really uh, scientific enough, and then now the uh, <laughs> populist right uh, might be appropriating him and he was against technology he was against medicine and so on uh, but i want to liberate 
Ivan Illich from the past as well, in the sense, for instance, if you look at his writings on education, his writings on de-schooling, uh, uh, which are so important today in the time of remote learning, remote everything, remote fucking, remote loving, remote friendship, I think Ivan Illich is so relevant today. Uh, but he was unfairly and is still unfairly being dismissed. Uh, 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 in the same way, Rudolf Steiner, for instance, we can say many things about Rudolf Steiner, uh, uh, but he's an interesting figure who has to be liberated in a way as well. Uh, so I think we have to learn from the past. We have to fulfill the unfulfilled potentials of the past. We have to lead some thinkers from the past towards directions maybe they themselves wouldn't take mm -hmm. or they were not aware of it because they were, as you say, uh, uh, kind of uh, entrapped in their own reality, entrapped in their own present that they couldn't even look so far ahead. I love the way you say that because in some sense, it's also when you say leading them through a path, you know, um, it, it is, it, it is in a way a work of, you know, it, it is something of working with the dead. Like we do need to encounter and bring the dead, you know, what is the, what is the, um, Oh, I'm going to mess it up, but there's like the, the Deleuze quote, which is something like, you know, the dead stand, uh, the dead stand before us, you know? Um, and I think we, we need to, we do need to relate to them in a different way. And I mentioned this on the last episode too, but there's that Benjamin quote of, you know, not even the dead will be safe. Right. So we, we actually need to find and cut that pathway through time. So that's another way of distorting, disrupting, changing our view of time so that the dead come into it. And in fact, what could be more helpful in changing our view of time than the dead themselves? I mean, who live timelessly, you know, uh, in, in a certain sense, who, who uh, live without the kinds of uh, time that affect the body anymore. And I think you know, maybe the place to conclude, the last thing to talk about is just, you know, the immediate challenge. I think it's, it's you know, it, we, we're talking about really big things. And then also, you know, I mean, here in Ireland, we're still just like six months of what is known as like the, the harshest lockdown in Europe. You know, you can't go more than five kilometers from your house. Everything's closed down. You're not allowed to have anybody over to your house, like all this. And the government is absolutely fumbling and idiotic. And uh, they have no idea what they're doing. <laughs> they have no idea what they're doing. Uh, while you and I are in our respective uh, apartments, uh, re radically reworking uh, the theory of worlds and reality itself, also, like, uh, things are a bit of a pain in the ass right now. And there are pressing threats, um, even more pressing probably than climate change in the sense that it's just right there. It's right there and it's immediate, whether it's someone being poor or... Uh, and 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 worrying about rent, or it's someone being stuck in a house with an abusive partner, or whatever. How do we how do we figure that immediate present threat into also the need to uh, rework everything? You know, um, because we have to stay with what we have, with all the tools that we have, with without the things that have been radically reconfigured to help others right now in those situations. And when we use those tools, in some ways we do reinforce, you know, um, the reality that we're trying to break or sort of get out of or change or help grow. 
So um, yeah, I would say that this situation, as as dire as it is, is actually quite liberating. Uh, in which way, you know, you just mentioned Ireland and the kind uh, kind of measures you have there. Interestingly enough, in Croatia today, uh, all the terraces of the cafe bars uh, were just reopened, and I was walking through the city, and it just looks completely surreal. Uh, spring is back uh, because of climate change. It already started last month in February. Everyone is out, sitting in the sun, uh, uh, no social distancing. Uh, and it's just surreal to then, at the same time, simultaneously uh, hear from friends or look at the photos or pictures from other parts of the world. And then again, what we are kind of encountering is this kind of different temporalities which we have simultaneously in different parts of the world. And why is this liberating? I would say it's liberating in the, in the original sense of the uh, meaning of the word apocalypse because it's a sort of revelation. It is a sort of unwilling of the inequalities which exist in the world, uh, the unwilling of a system which is completely rotten, uh, the unwilling of human solidarity, uh, and uh, as difficult as it is, and as different as it is very often in different countries, it's quite different in China today uh, than in the United States or in Brazil under Bolsonaro or uh, the Marshall Islands, which are also faced by radioactivity and so on, uh, the pandemic gave us a sort of possibility to have a collective experience, to have an experience of, of something which is much bigger than our own differences, even in temporality or our own inequalities and so on. It gave us an opportunity to, to have an understanding of the planetary, to, to have an understanding of Earth itself, I would say, and as part as the, of, of this world. And I think it can be liberating, especially if you look at past catastrophes, uh, uh, which we were speaking about in our last conversation uh, almost one year ago, you know, the explosion of the volcano Laki uh, on Iceland, which kind of prepared the ground for the French Revolution. Uh, or take, for instance, the, 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 the Black Death, uh, where, you know, it led to the kind of dissolution of feudalism, but also great works of art were created. Uh, I think this is hopeful, ex except that I have to go back to, to the last book, which is not so hopeful, uh, that perhaps this is the last epoch, uh, epoch in, in history. And that after this, there will actually not be any more history, because history exists only as long as humans exist. Uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, maybe an elephant uh, has some sort, probably, and I'm sure has uh, very often an even bigger uh, intuition or understanding of the world than us ourselves, but an elephant cannot really write a history in the sense of humans. So when humans disappear, whether it's because of climate crisis, nuclear dissolution, or whatever it is, I think there won't be any history anymore. So this is what makes our moment really special. Uh, and I think there is some joy in it as well, because I am, I'm not... I didn't lose hope, but I don't think hope is, in, hope is enough. I think you need a sort of determination at the same time, and you need a sort of play at the same time. Although it sounds as a contradiction, but I, need, I think you need both things. A determination to send this little message in a bottle to a future generation, a determination to fight both fascism, capitalism, and the destruction of, of the biosphere and, the, and, and, and extinction. But at the same time, you need also this kind of joy, uh, uh, solidarity, love, uh, uh, desire, 
uh, without which we are not able, we won't be able to transform the world. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I <clears throat> what you're just saying about you know in Croatia, like the terraces being open and how it's you know <laughs> it's surreal. I mean, in some ways, you learn then that globalization is kind of a lie. I mean, in, in one sense, it's completely true because there is a global economy and and all the powers. But if complete globalization had happened, then that wouldn't be possible, and we'd all be suffering in a very similar sort of monocultured way. But but you don't also want nationalism to resist globalization because nationalism is sort of a mini globalization in some sort, of, or maybe globalization is a macro nationalism or something like that, where everything becomes so so contained that everybody's experiencing the same things but just in a smaller area. So I think that what you point to is actually like, look, wherever the suffering is happening, you know, on the one hand, of course, we can demarcate the places where pleasure and joy are happening as uh, luxuriant or decadent or, you know, uh, bougie or whatever we want. But on the other hand, we can see no, actually, the way that that's spaced out, the way that um, you know joy and happiness is flourishing in some places, is actually a great portent of you know, uh, uh, well, not to say hope, but of hope, you know. Um, but I, but I also think, you know, I want to say if we're dealing with this thought of complete annihilation, if that's held by us, you know, I I texted my friend the other day and I just said, what if it's all what if it all, everything bad is actually going away? What if it's all just actually going away? Like not, what if things aren't go- about to get worse? What if it's all getting better? Not just one part of it, but completely better and real, like maybe not utopia exactly as a state, but we, we are uh, leaving behind all the problems that, that vexed us and uh, they can no longer sustain themselves. And as soon as I said that, I felt a kind of new feeling, like a new sort of light rushed in and i knew because of that feeling that there was something to it to stay with because it it's just not something that's on the table right now you know and we need to say it for it to be able to descend into matter for it to be able to be the imagination that reaches through uh you know or 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 helps us evade the kind of time we're stuck in and 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 bloom and and flourish and grow um because it's so crazy and so disconnected from our idea of how linear time works that actually everything would be great that we've already disrupted the pathway of linear time if we think it. So maybe now let's just think it, you know? (laughs) I mean, I think that that's the, I wouldn't necessarily call it a miracle, but that's the function of the miracle in in a lot of ways is that it disrupts space and time. Um, So, yeah, I mean, so to the extent that we think of, the apocalypse we can also think of absolute uh sal- salvation maybe that's the term or maybe not i'm not sure <laughs> yeah there is this saying which i think it's ascribed to john lennon i think which says that uh, in the end everything will be okay if it's not okay it's not the end uh, and i think this is kind of comforting in the sense that sometimes things have to be not okay so that you can find some joy in life or that to put it like that sometimes you need injustice in order to be just uh, sometimes shit has to happen so that you can 
rediscover the strength in yourself, that you can rediscover love, friendship, uh, that you can rediscover a determination to change this injustice. Uh, so in this sense, I think uh, we have to get used to this, that we are living in a kind of never-ending groundhog day, uh, that we are going, that mass extinction is going to happen. I mean, it's completely certain, even if Elon Musk goes to Mars, uh, mass extinction will still happen. And I'm very <laughs> suspicious that he will go to Mars because I think, you know, whenever a civilization was able to reach such sort of technological perfection, these civilizations usually used this technological perfection for self-destruction. Uh, so, uh, but in our daily life, I think, uh, as our encounter shows each time, uh, but also friendship and uh, the kind of connections we have with other people in the world, uh, we have to live in the here and the now. And I don't know how, how, to, how to conclude except that, uh, well, we are living in deep shit, but maybe precisely because of this ship, this deep ship, shit, now oh, I have to repeat it. <laughs> <laughs> it was like kind of hip hop, hip hop or rap, what, what I just said. So we are, we are living in deep, deep shit, but maybe precisely because of this deep, well, it's impossible to say. Look, I, I'm just, I'm finished. <laughs> But I can, I can, I can try to repeat it again. And you don't have to cut it. You can leave it here. Once more, the feeling. I, yeah, it seems I'm, I, it seems I'm being, I'm confusing the shit with shit. I don't know. Maybe it's psychoanalytical, but we are definitely living on a big ship, which is going into shit. Uh, but precisely the fact that this, you know, this historic moment, uh, is in such shit maybe gives, uh, some opportunity, uh, to navigate our ship towards a different future. Uh, I don't know whether I succeeded to, you know, like Baron Munhausen to get out of this swamp, but <laughs> you can just cut it or leave it, do whatever you want. It's a kind of, yeah. Yeah, maybe, yeah. Well, thank you, and uh, thanks for your Freudian shit, and uh, I and I really appreciate, yeah, I, I really appreciate. Yeah, I'm always happy to share the shit with you. <laughs> shoot the ship um i am very I'm, I'm just very happy to talk with you again and uh hopefully i'll talk with you um, maybe i'll talk with you you know before next year but just put out another book and be on again next year it'll be great and uh it can become an annual thing but uh thank you so much for uh hanging out and talking and everybody thank you so much for listening <laughs> <laughs>